Welcome to HubSpot's Unconventional Business Podcast. I'm your host, James Gilbert. The best companies are the ones that make it incredibly easy and delightful to do business with. It's seamless, frictionless, intuitive. It's not just a better experience, they're actually disrupting our very notion of what consumers should be able to expect from companies. You see, Aussies and Kiwis are a hard bunch to please. We have some of the highest expectations in the world, and luckily for us, our homegrown businesses know this. This season, on HubSpot's Unconventional Business, you'll be meeting some of our best homegrown brands as they share how they're growing and winning by disrupting the customer experience. Let's meet today's guest. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of HubSpot's Unconventional Business. With us this week is Simon Griffiths, the CEO and founder of Who Gives a Crap. Welcome, Simon. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for coming. I'm, I'm really excited for our chat today. For people who aren't familiar with your company, do you want to give the little elevator pitch on who gives a crap and, and what it is that you guys do and, and why our audience should give a crap. Yeah, I mean, this for us comes back to the 2.3 billion people that don't have access to a toilet globally. You know, a massive problem, really devastating health impacts um, and something that's hard to relate to in the West because we all have great toilets that we use every day. And so we thought there was this opportunity to create a direct-to-consumer toilet paper company and use half of our profits to help build toilets in different parts of the developing world. And now we sell, you know, we started in Australia, but now we sell in the UK, USA, uh, and we've just opened up Europe and we're also selling in, in Sweden and Swedish Krona as well. And from our USA warehouses, we're shipping into Canada. So we've been going for about seven years now and donated um, a bit more than 8 million Australian or 5 million US US dollars in that time, which has been pretty good. And so how did it actually start? Like, where did the idea come from and... And what was your background that made you think, oh, this is a good fit for us? Yeah, I think the, the interesting thing is all three founders kind of came at it from slightly different angles. Um, so for me, you know, I was really um, passionate about development economics and um, had worked out that, you know, there's a lot of good organizations doing really good work out there that were all competing for the same pool of funds. And so, um, you know, they'd put in a grant application and then when they'd win it, they'd celebrate not realizing that that meant that 10 other people had had put in a lot of time that had essentially been wasted because they didn't get the grant and so that rent seeking phenomenon was you know it didn't really make sense to me um and so i started thinking about what could we do to get more money flowing into the space so that there was less rent seeking going on and i realized that the philanthropy market is is actually fairly capped it's quite difficult to increase the amount of global philanthropy on an ongoing basis because we have to get everyone who gives today to give twice as much in order to double the size of the philanthropy market. And that's not sustainable, but there's also the, these trillions of dollars that change hands in the economy every day through the goods and goods, of, you know, sale of goods and services. And so if we could tap into that, you know, trillion dollars of, of money that's floating around, then we've got this opportunity to divert some of the, those, those funds to do something really good. And so that's kind of where the idea came from. And so that's really your hybrid model where you're not a for you're not a pure profit driven business you're not a non-profit you kind of sit in between where you're running a business that's profitable and that enables it to grow and then a, a significant byproduct of that is that you can fund these development activities in a more sustainable way i guess yeah that's exactly right so i think what we when you know the original idea was actually to be a non-profit toilet paper company we thought it'd be cool to to create this company that you know donated 100 percent of its profits 
but uh, realized pretty early on that by doing that, you actually end up kind of hamstringing the the potential future, you know, what, what the future prospects of the company can look like because there's not capital to reinvest in the business every year because you're trying to pay out 100% of your profits at the end of the financial year so that you're tax efficient by, you know, getting as much donation out before you end up being taxed. And that doesn't, um, you know, set yourself up for growth because you don't have the the equity in the business to be able to continue growing or the retained earnings to continue growing year after year. Um, so that's one of the many reasons that we decided to shift. And we thought that, you know, a 50% model still showed to our customers that the reason why we're doing this is because of this, you know, massive problem that exists in the world. And if that problem wasn't there, then this company wouldn't be here either. But we think that the 50% model is actually the fastest way for us to tackle that problem because we believe that we can grow the business twice as fast as if we were donating 100% of our profits, more than twice as fast. And ultimately, that means it will have more impact in the end. Has that been the thought from the start or has that evolved as you've as you've grown? Like, was it always 50% from day one or? Yeah, I think, you know, when we had the idea, it was kind of 20, late 20, 2009. And then we went to a social business incubator in Boulder, Colorado in 2010. And we're there for about 10 weeks. And while we were there, that's when we had the idea to kind of shift from an 100% model to a 50% model, because a lot of the mentors were challenging us and saying, well, this is a great idea. I'd love to invest in it, but I can't invest in a nonprofit company because there's no, you know, there's no equity to invest in. And so we started thinking about, you know, what are the, all of the downsides of this? And then we shifted that model in the middle of 2010 and then, you know, kind of continued developing it from there. So it's really been, you know, in the DNA of the business since we first kind of put it out into the world in a, in a serious way with our crowdfunding campaign, which was in 2012. And that uh, crowdfunding campaign was a pretty interesting one. I, I watched the video. Uh, we've chatted about it. Do you want to give people a bit of an overview of, of that campaign and what you had to endure to yeah. pull it off personally? <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, you know, Wind back to 2012, Kickstarter was starting to become, you know, an, a known brand. So it was kind of really early days of crowdfunding. I think um, at the time we launched our campaign, there'd been six $1 million crowdfunding campaigns in total prior to us launching. There's now probably, you know, several multi-million dollar campaigns launched every day. It's it's really, you know, the landscape's changed a lot in those eight years. Um, direct to consumer wasn't, wasn't a thing. You know, Warby Parker had just got started. Um, Dollar Shave Club had launched their viral video six months before our crowdfunding camp. And so the direct consumer movement was just beginning. It was really like early, early days. And, you know, the term direct consumer wasn't, wasn't yet kind of coined. Um, and so we realized that selling toilet paper online was kind of a big ask. And it was probably the most boring product that had ever been crowdfunded. And we didn't have this kind of crazy cult following behind us, which is what, you know, the first six $1 million crowdfunding campaigns had had in order to make them successful. And so we thought we've got to do something different to get people's attention. And so to sit on a toilet on a live web feed until we'd pre-sold the first $50,000 worth of product. And so that took in the end, you know, we, we, we hoped it was going to be kind of less than 24 hours. We thought at its most, it's potentially going to be a week and we'll have to get a doctor to kind of come say it's not safe to do this anymore you've got to get up um it ended up taking 50 hours and uh i didn't get off the toilet for that that whole time so um yeah pretty sore oh. legs by the end of it 
50 hours <laughs> is a lot of time. Did that, uh, was the final donation like your parents coming through and being like, this is for the love of God, we need to, <laughs> this is no longer safe. Yeah, it was, um, I think my parents were actually the first to donate. So the kind of the, the, the way that you, you build up momentum on a crowdfunding campaign is to get a third of the money in early so that when people that are, you know, two or three degrees mm-hmm. removed come in and see your campaign, they believe that it, this is going to happen. And so they're more likely to donate than if they come in and you've got zero dollars in the bank. And so I got like a, a bunch of people to kind of put money in early, including my parents. Um, I think by the end of it, they were like, we've, we've got more money. Should we give you more money? But by that point, the kind of momentum was there. You know, they're like, we're happy to pay for you to get off the toilet. But um, yeah, the momentum was there. And so we just needed that that last couple of hours for the kind of fun, final funds to trickle in. But it was, it was kind of funny because we launched it at 6 a.m. on a Tuesday morning in Australia to try and get into mm-hmm. the international press in the US and also in the UK. Um, and so that that last you know from f- the hour the 40 hour to the 50 50th hour that was from midnight until 8 a.m um australia time and so there were pre- there were six pretty lonely hours in there from midnight through to 6 a.m where you know no one was awake in australia we were like embedded on the the homepage of the largest latin american newspaper in the world so we had tons of traffic coming from brazil but not many donations because we weren't fulfilling orders to brazil um, and so I think I kind of um, at 4 a.m. was on Reddit trying to drum up, you know, uh, traffic from Reddit users in the USA. And um, someone said, you know, you've been awake for 44 hours. Don't you go into a state of permanent psychosis when when you stayed up that long? And at this point, oh. I'd stayed up so long that I was hallucinating. Like all of the still images on my laptop were like turning into GIFs and I kept hallucinating. There was a shelf next to me to kind of lean on to take a break and I'd almost fall off the toilet as a result. And so um, I kind of got a bit freaked out by that and said, you know, this is, this is it. I'm calling it. And I, I kind of pulled up my pants and turned around and fell asleep on the system, like still sitting on the toilet. And then someone oh. came and woke me up at, at 6 a.m. and said, you're almost there. There's more money coming in. Like, we're going to do it. And that was the last two hours where it all happened quite quickly. And I think we got coverage in all the national newspapers that day in Australia. <laughs> wow. So you said there was three co. Yeah, there was three of you that started it. How did you get the short straw? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the other two founders at the time were, you know, we're, we're a fully bootstrap business. So we all kind of had to work other jobs in order to get started. And so the other two co-founders at the time were working full-time, one of them at IDEO in San Francisco, the kind of design thinking consultancy. And um, Jayhan was at, at Google in LA at the time working on strategy at YouTube. And so I was kind of working probably 30 hours a week on this and the others were, you know, more kind of advising and putting in um, smaller amounts of time. And so the, the onus kind of really unfortunately fell on me. Um, but, um, you know, I think no regrets, like what an amazing way to launch the company. We went viral from that campaign, found our first 1000 customers, which is the hardest thing to do as a, as a new business. And those 1000 customers really, you know, built up all of the word of mouth groundswell around us that ultimately made us successful in the long run. Um, so yeah, it was an awesome way to get started and I wouldn't sit on a toilet for 50 hours again, but I definitely launched the company that way again. It was a great way to go. Yeah. It's an interesting, um, motion i think with consumer companies that if you the crowdfunding campaign you know if people look at it simply it's like an alternative funding way to get started but i think there's more depth to it where to your point it's actually it's a marketing campaign and a funding exercise 
all wrapped into one and it's almost like a bit of a jump start for consumer businesses if they can get it right and if they can be having a product that resonates with consumers it's almost validation of that funding of it and marketing of it all in the one exercise which if you're lucky enough to pull it off or you're willing to endure 50 hours of sitting on a toilet to pull off is a is a pretty good way to get started was it all from there were you off to the races bang we've we've hit our first big order and never looked back like i've got to imagine uh toilet paper even though it seems simple there's probably a lot of complexity with actually getting it produced making sure it arrives at people's homes correctly that there's <laughs> a lot more dynamics in it than selling like software yeah. online we kind of thought that was it like we'd done it but um and it would be smooth sailing from there but i think you know if we again if we rewind back to 2012 direct to consumer wasn't a thing yet and so the idea of buying you know, toilet paper online from a, an online business that was like not a known concept, except maybe in the US people were doing that through Amazon, but probably nowhere else in the world. Um, and so we really thought that the way to be successful would actually be to get a contract with supermarkets and to become a supermarket supplier. And particularly in Australia, 99.9% .9 of, of Australia's toilet paper was sold through supermarkets in 2012. So it was, um, you know, a really different landscape to where we're at today. Through that campaign, although it went really well, we didn't get any interest from supermarkets at all. And so we we thought that we'd have to basically kind of, um, you know, build up demand for our product by knocking door to door on businesses and hotels and trying to like build up B2B clients to allow us to ramp up our production, build up our team, get to know our customers and the product a bit more and continue trying to get into supermarkets. And it wasn't until we landed our first production run and started sending it out to our crowdfunding campaign supporters, you know, still thinking supermarkets are the way to go. Um, we knew that we had about three months worth of supply for our direct consumer customers in our warehouse based on our daily sales rates. And without us doing any marketing or sales ourselves, all of a sudden our daily sales started to double every day for five days. And after five days, we sold out of that three month supply that we had in our warehouse. And there was this massive you know, word of mouth groundswell around our business because those crowdfunding campaign supporters were posting photos of our product on social media. They were taking roles to work and giving them to, to colleagues and literally telling everyone they knew about what we were doing. And that's something that no toilet paper company in the world had ever yeah. happened before. And so at that point we knew, you know, this is potentially a much better business than what we thought you know let's let's keep going on supermarkets but we need to really focus on making the online side of things work and, and building out all of the functionality there yep. um, and again in 2012 that wasn't an easy task because shopify's platform was pretty rubbish yep. all of the apps on it kind of sucked and you couldn't do a lot of stuff and so we had to really like you know build a very kind of heavy manual process on how we processed our, our orders every day in order to make sure that our customers were getting them and they were being tracked and, and they knew where they were when they were in, in transit. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty kind of rough journey to get to that point. Um, I think that the other big thing that happened was once we started sending product out to our customers and we'd sold out, we were kind of celebrating, but then our customers started um, writing into us saying, I love this business. I love what you stand for. I love the packaging, but the product sucks. Like I can't tear the sheets apart without a pair of scissors. Oh. And it turned out that 
I'd done a production run and I'm an engineer, but I'm an electrical engineer. And so I didn't actually know that much about manufacturing. So I thought I'd done a really good job on quality control, but it turned out that I'd actually forgotten to check that our perforating blades were being sharpened regularly enough. And we produced yeah 200,000 rolls of imperfectly perforated toilet paper. Um, some of which, you know, was specific to businesses and it took us about a year and a half to sell through that with some some businesses that we gave some really great discounts to help us get that product moving. So some amazing early customers that kind of put up with some of the, the mistakes that we'd made along the way. Wow. I imagine um, one of the things that must be tricky is you order your toilet paper from the warehouse and then there's actually a bit of a lead time before you know if customers have received toilet paper that doesn't tear and kind of goes against the point of it um and that in between time must be quite scary when you hear news like that and you don't know the magnitude of the error and it's actually very hard to check the only way i imagine you actually find out is through complaints coming in um yeah yeah is there is there ways that you over time have been able to take some of the risk out of that process or uh, even, you know, even for your own peace of mind to figure out, is it just as simple as more quality control or do you have better feedback mechanism with customers? How does that work? Yeah, they're really, really good questions. So I think, you know, when we first started, um, it, it was me, it was a one man team, essentially. Um, I did our production for the first, uh, two, three years, I was kind of doing all of our production management. So traveling regularly to our production facility, overseeing production, setting all of our quality control standards. Um, I think we realized, uh, you know, probably two years into that, that, um, you know, again, I thought I'd done a pretty good job on kind of setting up how we were doing quality control with our producers. Um, but there was this one month where, um, we started, I think two years in, we started advertising on Facebook for the very first time. You know, the first two years we just grew from, from word of mouth and, um, two years in, we turned on Facebook advertising and we were, I think Danny and I, one of the co-founders, we were in East Timor, um, seeing some of WaterAid's work in the field and staying at a hotel where we had internet, you know, at the hotel. But as soon as you left the hotel, your phone stopped working. There was no internet, you know, it was pretty remote. And so every day Danny would set the Facebook ad budget and then we'd come home at the end of the day and see how we'd performed for the day and, you know, like celebrate the kind of wins or the losses that had, that had happened. And one day we got home and our sales were like, you know, five times bigger than what we were expecting. And we're like, what's going on here? Have we had media coverage? Like, where's all this traffic come from? And it turned out that Danny had put an extra zero on the end of the Facebook ad budget that we had, you know, not picked up in time. And so it, it had actually gone really well. And we'd, we'd had a really, you know, great, great day in terms of ad performance. And so he said, you know, what do we do? Do we kind of leave it up there? Do we take it down? We said, let's leave it. Let's see how long we can kind of drive this extra traffic for. And so we had kind of, you know, these week or so of, of really strong sales before we realized that if we kept going, we were pretty much going to run out of, of stock because we only had so much stock in our warehouses. And so I think that month we grew, you know, 50% month on month from July to August, I think it was. Um, so massive month on month growth. Um, and then because we'd also run down all of our inventory, it meant that our order book actually doubled from July to August because now, you know, the business was 50% bigger, but on top of that, we had to replenish all of the inventory that we'd sold through. And so we basically went to our producer and said, you know, we know we asked you to produce 18 containers last, last month, 
this month we need to produce 36 and their eyes lit up and they were ecstatic. And, you know, we're all celebrating because this is kind of us growing together and, you know, working through um, some of these challenges together and seeing some of the rewards. Um, And so we thought that everything was great. And it wasn't until, yeah, about six weeks after that, that that production order landed in Australia. And I was, I happened to be jumping on a plane to go to China the next day to, to, you know, meet with our producer. And uh, as a result, I got a few boxes shipped out from our warehouse so that I could check them and see what the quality was like. And the very first roll I pulled out of the first box, it literally looked like someone had kind of run a cheese grater through the whole roll, which is obviously the last thing you want to see when you're, when you're buying toilet paper from someone. Um, And so, you know, had a bit of a freak out moment, called all of our warehouses around Australia, got them to quarantine the stock that was arriving, jumped on the plane and kind of handed that over to um, one of our logistics team to kind of pick up and see if we could figure out what was going on before I landed. And it turned out that there was product, you know, all over the country that had this same problem, which was obviously like a really big problem. We don't want customers to get, to get product that isn't of exceptional quality. And so um, that to me, you know, I met with the producer and they, they I think they even said to us, We've worked out what the problem is. It's contained to about a hundred boxes and they've all gone to Melbourne. And I said to them, no, it isn't. Like we've seen this right across the whole country. It's definitely not just in Melbourne. So how can I believe that it's in a hundred boxes? And so I think that day we had to turn off our website for the first time and really like go through, you know, all of the stock that had landed doing kind of a statistical analysis on, you know, if we open a hundred boxes and see what the product's like, that gives us a pretty good feel for, all of the stock that's landed based on, you know, the statistical kind of um, analysis that comes out of that or what's called an AQL in production language. Um, and so we, we went through that process and luckily we realized that it was contained to only a hundred boxes, but somehow our producer thought it was all in one city, whereas it actually had gone all around the country. And so that taught me that the quality control systems I put in place should have given us perfect traceability of every box. I mean, we should have been able to see exactly which cities they were in, but they'd actually, you know, not been followed to the T. And as a result, we'd ended up with product in places where it shouldn't have been. So the the standard operating procedures for quality assurance that I'd written weren't being followed properly. And we had this massive kind of, you know, leaky boat problem where we weren't quite sure what was going on as a result of those, those processes not being followed properly. And so I think, you know, we learned from that, that, um, we had to really button up. I think we actually stopped production for a week and retrained everyone and, and made sure that, um, we quarantined all of the stock that had landed in Australia and, and figured out, you know, where the damaged boxes were and, and made sure that it wasn't going out to customers and were able to contain it, which was pretty good. But the bigger lesson there was that we had to find a better way to, to really go about um, doing quality control moving forward. Because as you said, there is this kind of six to eight week lead time where we assumed that there's probably another six weeks of damaged stock on the water that we're going to receive in Australia And that's, if that's, you know, all damaged, that's going to completely bankrupt our business because we can't afford to pay for it. We don't have enough money to pay for it and keep the business running. Um, And so it was a really kind of eye-opening moment, I guess, um, in the journey of the business. And now, yeah, we have much, much more sophisticated systems, you know, people on the ground um, in every production partner at least once a month. And on top of that, we're doing, you know, inspections, I think, many, many times a day to kind of a statistical standard to allow us to see what's going on in each production facility throughout, you know, many parts of every day. And ultimately that means that we've got, yeah, we, we can sleep a lot better at night knowing that the product yeah. is being shipped at a quality that is what we've spec'd. So just so I've got the timeline right, you found out just before you hopped on a eight hour, 10 hour flight that there was a, a big problem. 
and then yeah. this flight was in like 2012-ish, so there's no Wi-Fi on the flight. You just have to sit <laughs> with the knowledge that <laughs> on the seas below could be your whole float and it could all be compromised. That must have been a horrendous flight, I feel like. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, in many ways that's just kind of, that's just what doing international business is like. You know, you're often flying into a challenge at one end and you're using that flight to prepare for what's going to happen when you get off the plane yep. at the other end. And you're usually totally wrecked because you've flown overnight and you haven't slept well, you've changed time zones. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, I definitely um, remember having some harder conversations with our producers and them just being like, how are you doing this after you've just flown in overnight? Like, <laughs> how are you still functioning and like able yeah. to have these, you know, really challenging conversations? Um, but I think, you know, it's so important that you get those conversations right. The adrenaline just kicks in and, and it just keeps you going to the point where, you know, you, you ultimately get, get to the place where you need to. And that's, um, I think that's just a part of doing international business. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. That, uh, yeah, that's been very stressful. Um, but it, it touches on something I've heard you talk about a lot where people pursuing, businesses structured like yours they think that doing the donation is enough that that's going to be their key differentiating factor and that's why people will buy for them but actually you've talked about this analogy of a store and that's just one leg of a three-legged store and if you don't have um other elements namely like quality and a really good product irrespective of if you were um doing good with the the profits from that product it's just not good enough today do you can you talk a bit about that and and how you came to that point of view that stool analogy comes from the idea that you know with who gives a crap we have this very strong product brand cause link and that's kind of the special source of our business so it's a three-legged stool and if you remove one of those legs the business wouldn't would fall over it wouldn't be as successful as what it is today um and so that, you know, that means that we could be an online toilet paper company that doesn't donate its profits, but I don't think we would have been able to grow the business to the point that we've been able to because the cause and the donations are kind of a key part of our overall success. Um, and so that's, I think, yeah, that's sort of where the the analogy comes from. From a, a customer point of view, the way that we think about it is that um, we want to be able to remove that cause element and know that the business will still stand up because the product is good enough. The customer experience is good enough. Our customers love the brand and therefore, you know, the donation element, the sustainability element, they're just the extra things that happen to come from buying, you know, this, this product that they love. That's kind of what we aim for. Um, and so what that means is that, you know, with, our, with toilet paper in particular, we said this product, this physical product has seen enough innovation in the last 50 years. We don't need five-ply toilet paper. We don't need eight-ply toilet paper. Um, what we can do is actually innovate around the physical product. So we can innovate all of the different parts of the customer experience from you know, really fast delivery, free shipping, beautiful packaging, the donation element, the sustainability element, great customer service. If we can get all of those things right, we can build a product offering to our customer that is superior to what they get from buying in the supermarket, particularly if we turn on subscriptions and can solve the fact that they will never run out of toilet paper again once they buy from us. Um, and so that's sort of how we think about, you know, the overall kind of customer experience and where there is room for innovation in a category where, you know, the physical product is actually pretty damn good and we don't need to do that much about it. So that's like, again, a pretty different way 
of um, thinking about how to run a business. And it, it seems that we're seeing more of these business models, whether it's yourself or Warby Parker or or other businesses pursuing like a profitable standalone business. Uh, business i guess but it has a very substantial cause element and the intertwining of those is actually helping them achieve a level of growth that if they did either by themselves they wouldn't be able to get to do you think this is going to be more of a trend as people you know understand more about the companies they're buying from and want to buy from companies where they're proud of what the company ultimately ends up doing with those funds? Like, how do you think about that? Yeah, great question. I think that's 100% correct. I think, um, you know, my view of the world is that this kind of ethical business movement of, you know, businesses like ours and, and Warby Parker, it feels like that movement is sort of at the same place that sustainability was at 10 years ago. Um, <clears throat> so if we think back 10 years ago about sustainability, you know, carbon neutral was a buzzword that was getting, you know, put into place by early adopters. Tesla was this new electric car company that had just IPO'd and had a, a market cap of about a billion dollars. And things like, um, you know, reusable water bottles from Swell and reusable coffee cups from Keep Cup, they were kind of in their infancy. And we fast forward to where we're at today, you know, Swell and Keep Cup are household names. They're some of the most gifted corporate gifts. Tesla is the most valuable car company in the world. And literally the, the biggest companies in the world, you know, Apple and Nike have said that they've got plans to go zero carbon. So sustainability, you know, has been shown now that it is actually linked to profitability and the biggest companies in the world believe that. And it feels like that's where this ethical business movement is at, you know, today in terms of where sustainability was 10 years ago, which I think in 10 years time means the biggest companies in the world will be thinking about how they can add, you know, more depth into the soul of their business by doing more good and talking about what that looks like with their customer because their customer will be demanding it. And if they can't get it from the companies that they're buying from today, they're going to go and buy it from other companies instead. And so I think that's super exciting thinking about, yeah, what the next 10 years looks like. And why do you think customers are demanding that now, whereas in the past they've been more ambivalent about it? I think part of that is that that demand has been there, but the supply hasn't. And so I think, you know, what we've seen in the last decade in particular, the internet's made it possible to to create brands and to create companies faster than ever before. You know, a company like ours couldn't have existed without the internet because we would have needed that supermarket contract to actually get started. And we still don't work with a supermarket today, you know, 10 years on from having the idea and you know, donating, you know, $8 million. We still don't have a supermarket partner that's, that's made that possible. And that's not to say that we won't work with supermarkets in the future, but we've been able to build a great business without needing to, to rely on some of those more traditional sales channels. And so the internet's meant that there's thousands, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of new companies, new brands that are popping up. And we see the ones that are resonating with customers really, you know, rising to the surface and eventually making it and becoming really successful. Um, and so the supply of companies that have ethics baked into them is getting bigger and bigger and bigger because there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that are thinking about this. And as a result, you know, consumers are finally able to have more choice and to be able to, to put their money in the places where they think it should really belong. Um, and so I think, you know, seeing that supply come and, and, and meet some of the demand in the market is also meaning that the way that consumers are thinking about this is evolving and what they're demanding is is changing and getting bigger and better over time. 
and so that I think is meaning that you know now we're seeing um, a much greater need for yeah products that do more with their money and think about how they produce their products so that um, they're being ethical right through their supply chain as well as in terms of how they deal with their profits. And speaking of need, I feel like you have. I mean, everybody's having an interesting 2020 in terms of seeing that customer need for your product. I feel like you've had a very interesting 2020. Uh, with lockdowns and toilet paper shortages in Australia. How how has that looked for your business? And I imagine your team has been under a lot of stress to, to help fulfill that. Yeah, um, 2020. So, you know, no one would have predicted 2020. No one would have predicted that toilet paper is the kind of hot, the hot product of the year. Mm. Um, so, so it's been, um, you know, quite an amazing year to be in the toilet paper business and particularly <laughs> an online toilet paper company, you know, with a distributed team, it felt like we'd sort of been training for 2020 for the six years prior. Um, but yeah, really kind of, um, you know, it's also a super challenging year for us as a company. I think to take you back to, to what um, everything looks like, in early March, I think, you know, we'd seen this run on toilet paper in Japan and then, sorry, in Hong Kong and then in Singapore and then in Japan. And we'd kind of looked at that and said, that'll never happen in any of the markets that we trade in. You know, that's never going to happen in Australia, the US or the UK. And so when it, when it did happen in Australia, we were just kind of dumb, you know, dumbfounded. Like we saw our daily sales kind of double one day and then they were up 5X the next day, 12X the day after that. And they looked like we were, you know, going to shoot to sort of 30 to 40 times what a regular day of sales would look like, which is doing more than a month of sales in a day. And our kind of inventory systems aren't built to deal with fluctuations that big. So we actually had to say, you know, we need to turn our store to sold out to make sure that we've got enough inventory to be able to provide product to our subscribers and our business customers that, you know, we've promised we'll never run out of, of product again. And so we did that, I think on um, March 4 and we turned on an email sign up so you could sign up and find out when we were back in stock. And then we kind of saw the same thing happen actually in the UK and the US, you know, pretty shortly after that. Um, we thought that email sign up list was going to get, you know, a few thousand signups. We ended up with more wow. than half a million people signing up to find out when we were back in stock which, um, you know, creates some pretty big challenges for how you go about rolling out your back in stock plan, because we were never going to have enough product to be able to email everyone at once saying, Hey, we're back in stock, come and buy from us. You know, we'd be sold out pretty much straight away. And so the team started thinking about, you know, what do we do here? How do we get the most toilet paper to the most people possible? And we realized that the constraints were going to be, uh, the number of orders our warehouses could ship, the number of customer inquiries we could deal with and the amount of inventory that we had. And so we worked with our warehouse and our career partners to figure out what the maximum number of orders they could send in a day would be. We hired and trained 25 freelancers in a week to answer three times the number of customer service inquiries. And we repacked our big 48 roll boxes into two 24 roll boxes so that we could send twice as many orders. And we did all of those things and then started emailing that, you know, at the time it ended up being a 600 and something thousand person email list, slowly inviting people to buy from us and working our way through that, which took about, um, you know, six to eight weeks, kind of hitting the absolute upper limits of the number of orders that our warehouse could send everything every single day for that six to eight week period. Um, so it was a pretty like amazing initiative to, um, to roll out, um, but also, you know, incredibly exhilarating but exhausting to go through as a team and as a company especially while everything else is going on around you that you know came with 2020 thinking about your family and you know potentially um yeah a lot of fear and stress that kind of just came with living through the pandemic 
Um, and so I think our team kind of knew that, that this was our moment to shine. This was the moment that we'd been working towards for many years prior. And if we got it right, we'd be able to ultimately make this huge donation at the end of the financial year, which comes at, you know, June 30. Um, and so I think it was incredibly rewarding for us to work through that in a way that stayed true to our values as a company. And then, yeah, come you know June 30, we were able to make a donation that was 700% bigger than the donation one year prior, um, which was pretty awesome. Wow. <laughs> so that, that donation was nearly $6 million, I read. Yeah. So yeah, I think it was 5.85 Aussie, um, about yep. 4 million USD. Um, so yeah, 730% bigger than, than the donation one year prior. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Just, just my, yeah. yeah. It, that, that, I'm sure that was a pretty amazing silver lining for your team after all their hard work. Um, but you, you mentioned the team is distributed. Is that something that you've had since the start as well? And like, obviously, Again, 2020, every team's distributed and remote. Uh, but yeah. it sounds like that was something you pursued earlier. Yeah. So I think, you know, when we first started the business, the three co-founders, I was based in Melbourne. Danny at the time was based in San Francisco, but was about to move back to the New York time zone. And Jayhan was based in LA. Um, so we were always, you know, working on at the time on email and Slack. It was Sorry, email and Skype. It was pre, you know, pre-Zoom, pre-Slack. Um and um, yeah, the tools were a little bit lacking. Um, but uh, as a result, we kind of built out the team as an, in a distributed model from early on. And we said, you know, when we've hired our first staff member, we said, we need to hire someone because you know, I can't do this by myself anymore, but we don't have the money to pay what a regular Australian or American salary would look like. So what are the options here? And one of my friends said, why don't you hire a virtual assistant in the Philippines? And so I kind of looked into it and thought, oh, this is a pre actually a pretty good idea. And so our first paid staff member was in the Philippines and I went over to visit her, um, you know, a few months after she'd started working with us and I'd onboarded her remotely and kind of, um, you know, built up her kind of workload gradually over time and went and visited her and realized that there's actually a, a ton of, you know, if, we, if we're in the business of making people's lives better, there's a ton of making people's lives better that we can do in the Philippines by hiring and building out a remote team there because the traffic is so bad in Manila in particular that people end up, you know, in cars anywhere from an hour to four hours a day and they don't know, you know, how long it's going to be. It varies every day. So it's hard to predict what's going on. And there's a lot of lost utility that comes from that. Um, on top of that, you know, people are often working in call centers and doing overnight shifts for many years in a row, which puts their body through a ton of stress and, and, you know, honestly, isn't that great. And so if we could start to build out a remote team that could work from home, be around their family more, which was also a really important value and not have to do the crazy night shifts. You know, we, we kind of stopped working, um, in the early hours of the morning for our U S team in the, in the Philippines. So we're not pushing someone all the way through from, you know, 10 PM to 8 AM or something like that, which is really kind of bad for um, cortisol levels and a whole bunch of other stuff. Um, if we can do all those things, we can actually create a lot of social impact for our team members as well. And so, um, yeah, from early on, we built out that Filipino team and then that just opened us up to saying, well, we're not restricted to hiring, you know, based on the cities that people live in, let's hire the right talent, regardless of where they're, where they're based. And we went that way for about two years, um, or three years. And we realized that through that, that, you know, face-to-face -face contact is actually incredibly important. So we brought the team together once a year to spend <clears throat> a week together to, to get to know each other, to bond. 
And when that happened, we saw that there was just this incredible amount of activity on, on Slack again after um, people had come together because now they could kind of tell jokes and understand people's sense of humor and sort of have online banter in a way that wasn't possible when they hadn't you know, met and socialized and you know broken bread, so to speak. Um, and so we saw an incredible benefit from that and eventually said, we're going to do this every year. And we're going to rotate, you know, where we do it based on where our team is based. So the first year was in Melbourne. Um, the, set, the, the third year was in the Philippines. And I think we're going to do, you know, China or Los Angeles in the future where, where our other team members are based. And then every off year, we're doing an impact trip where we're going and visiting one of our partners work in the field. So the second year we went to Cambodia and, and took the team to see water aids work in the field. This year we were scheduled to go to India and kind of do the, the whole retreat in India for a week before, you know, coronavirus stopped travel. Um, and so we sort of built the team out remotely with that in-person contact coming together once a year. And then more recently involved, evolved even further to say, you know, because face-to-face -face contact is so important, we actually do want to hire in specific cities. We want to hire in Melbourne, in Manila, in Los Angeles, and then the team can come together to collaborate under one roof when they need to and get that face-to-face -face time as, you know, a city hub. And then we'll also bring the whole team together, you know, once a year. But the, the norm is that people work from home and then in their city hubs, they set rules about how much time they spend together as a team. So in Melbourne, people made a commitment to come into the office a day a week and it could be any day. In Los Angeles, our team said, actually, we're more collaborative. We can kind of do marketing and creative, which are more collaborative functions. So we want to work together three days a week and that's going to be Monday, Wednesday and Friday. In the Philippines, I think it was more like a monthly fun activity. So not an office-based activity where the team comes together and spends time together in a, a more kind of laid back setting. Um, and so we let the individual city teams kind of define what their working routine looks like. And that varies based on, yeah, who's in the teams and what work they're carrying out. Yeah. I think, I think that answers your question. Maybe the part of that that I missed is that really for us, that came from, you know, as, as 20 year olds, we'd all worked in offices and felt like, the regular office grind kind of sucked <laughs> like you're breathing recycled air through air conditioners. You don't get much natural light. We felt like the kind of commitment that you make to your work by spending time in an office was greater than what we actually wanted to make to our work. And so we said, what if we flip this on the head and, and instead of work life balance being in that order, work and then life, what if we made this life work balance? And so we think about how do we prioritize people's lives knowing that work is important, but it's not as important as having a healthy and, and satisfactory life outside of work. And so for us, that was where the desire to, you know, set our own location, work from anywhere, be flexible on hours, all of those things kind of came from. And for me personally, that's meant, you know, not living in a city. I live an hour south of the city, surrounded by nature and right on the beach so I can go and surf or go swimming every day. Um, and that's meant a much higher quality of life sometimes at the sacrifice of work, but only in the short run, in the long run, it's always going to be better because my quality of life is, is really improved through that approach. And then when you've gone through uh, periods like you're probably still going through this year and definitely have as there was the toilet wars earlier in the year, how do you then balance that out on a practical level? Because I'm sure that just on a practical level created an amount of work that meant people had to probably do more than they typically did in any given day or week. And then with this sense of balance, how do you restore that uh, as, as things calm down? Yeah. So I think like, you know, as, as a purpose led organization, we probably get um, a lot more buy into our brand from our customers. 
we also get a lot more buy-in from our team. And that means that our team will work really hard to, to try and realize this shared vision, which ultimately for us is about making sure everyone in the world has access to a toilet. So through the pandemic, we knew that our team were digging really deep whilst also having all of the craziness of the rest of the world going on around them. And when we came out of, you know, the, the kind of toilet paper gate or the toilet paper apocalypse, whatever you want to call it, um, we knew that our team was, you know, exhausted, but exhilarated, as I'd said before, um, really in need of a break, but not wanting to take one because borders are closed, travel's restricted. And also, you know, we're still seeing a lot of residual demand in the business, which, which meant that if they took leave, they felt like they'd be letting some of their teammates down. And so we realized that, you know, through kind of weekly surveys that we started in COVID, our team were feeling the load, but didn't feel like they could take the leave that they needed to, to recover. And so something that we did this year, um, very recently, it's the first time we've, we've tried something like this was a huge experiment was to say to the whole team with two weeks notice, everyone's taking a week off. And if you're, you're, you're going to, if you want to, you can use one day of leave and we'll give you four extra days for free. And that's extra leave that we'll give you this year. And so we essentially gave everyone a week off with two weeks notice. And um, the idea was that that would allow people to switch off and really kind of, you know, recharge. Um, but we can't have the whole business off in one week or everything will shut down. And so we put it over a two week period and the team alternates through those two weeks and the second week, you know, the week that they're back at work, um, there's no meetings across the whole business. And so that's what we call a, a slow or a flow week, which allows them to have a moment to think about what the top priorities are coming into the end of the year, really refocus and work on the things that they believe are the highest priority for that week without distraction. And so we're rolling that out now. Um, I'm on my flow week at the moment and I've got my no week coming up next week where there's no work. And we're going to be kind of looking really closely at, you know, what are the benefits that come out of this? Um, can we see improved long-term productivity from giving everyone this moment to kind of catch their breath? And, and from our point of view, say thank you for what's been a crazy year, but also be really mindful of, of you know, everyone's mental health and making sure that we're not pushing anyone towards that, that point of, of burnout. And I think that was particularly irrelevant with Are You OK Day coming up, which is something that, you know, we always think about each year how do we check in with our team and think about, you know, are they okay? And so it was really interesting to have that kind of fall in the middle of this, you know, slow, no week, two week period that we've got running in the business at the moment. And then in terms of you as a business, you've now got to, I think, a scale where you're probably no longer worried about a, a fatal flaw with uh, any given stock quantity. And, and you've obviously grown a lot this year. What does growth for you look like and and you've said your team is pushing towards this goal of everybody having access to a toilet does it get more granular than that do you have like certain timelines and milestones that you're trying to get to to achieve that goal you know, the bigger picture question there is like how do we get to this goal of everyone in the world having access to a toilet and so what we did is we kind of worked out when we first set that goal what does that really look like and we said it's probably the size of what Kimberly Clark is today. So a many tens of billions of dollars of revenue company um, in order to generate the donations that we'd need to, to actually solve that problem. And we think we can get there in 30 years time. And so that's kind of the time frame that we've set. So by 2050, we want to be the size of what Kimberly Clark is today. 
And so we can kind of work backwards from there on an S curve saying, you know, those later years of growth will be a bit slower. And so we're more plateauing, whereas the early years of growth are going to be quite rapid. And we're kind of on this upward exponential curve that we need to hit in order to set ourselves up to, you know, ultimately get to that big 30 year goal. Um, and so we can kind of wind back from 30 years down to, all right, cool. What does the five year view look like? And then we know what we're trying to hit in that five-year period. And then what does the one-year view look like? And that's what we're executing on with our annual strategy at the moment. And so for us, you know, that's really around um, continuing to grow the Who Gives a Crap brand into new markets, putting some new products under the Who Gives a Crap brand. I think our first one we've got coming out in October, which is super exciting. And then we're also going to do some some new products outside of the Who Gives a Crap brand and, and, and see what that looks like as well to try and see if we can create something that, you know, has this three-legged stool effect for a new brand that we can put into the marketplace. Um, and so that's, I think, what the future looks like. A lot of growth under Who Gives a Crap, um, doing some new stuff outside of Who Gives a Crap, and then entering into new markets to kind of continue putting down additional um, footprint as we kind of grow the business out to take us to that five-year target that we've got which sets ourselves up to hit that big 30-year goal of making sure everyone in the world has access to a toilet wow well it definitely feels that you guys are well on the way and i i think the the covid boost that you've got has probably really <laughs> helped you uh make sure everybody was hitting their five-year goal um it's it's really impressive and i and i think you're right like you've demonstrated that this hybrid approach is actually the approach which is going to help lead to the fastest growth and is is a approach that consumers are resonating with more than ever. And then when you uh, were mentioning like your what companies you look to to the future, it's Kimberly Clark for the scale, but I imagine you probably look to other companies for the overall impact you want to have as an organization. Like, what are some of those other brands that you've seen or companies that have that have done this more ethical? business model and achieve the level of like notoriety and scale and impact that you're really striving for? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's lots of brands that we kind of look to for, for different things. I think, I feel like there's no one perfect brand, but there's, there's elements of lots of them that we look to for different reasons. Um, so I think, you know, Patagonia has done an amazing job of, of building their brand on kind of an ethical standpoint um, and making that something that their customers are really proud of and rally behind, particularly in the last decade. I think they've really kind of pushed that message out into the world in a positive way. Um, you know, Warby Parker, as we mentioned, one of the kind of early buy one, give one businesses, super exciting to see them kind of build, help build the direct consumer movement and have a lot of success doing that, which is awesome. Um, I think Tom Shoes is another one of kind of the early buy one, give one companies that really helped pave the way for, you know, for, for businesses like ours to come along in the future. Um, but yeah, that, that list kind of goes on. Um, there's a lot of exciting kind of big brand plays like Nike and Glossier, as I mentioned before that, um, you know, kind of set the tone for what it means to be a lifestyle brand in kind of the, the modern age. Um, but yeah, there's, you know, a long list of kind of exceptional companies that we look at for all different reasons, I guess. Yeah. Oh, well, it, it definitely seems that, um, you guys are well on your way to becoming one of those exceptional companies and, I think it's it's been really exciting for me to find out more about your brand. I saw a lot of the headlines this year around the donation. My uh, fiance is actually a huge fan of your products and I've seen the boxes everywhere. And we've definitely actually, she's not, 
great on the ordering side and often orders actually too much. I think she got a bit scared during the toilet wars. So we have a very healthy supply of toilet paper. Uh, but I think what you've created is is really remarkable and and you've done it in like the vein of the show, which is in an unconventional way. But what is interesting is when you started, it was unconventional. But I think now as a lot of those approaches and values and ways of operating become more wisdom it's actually you're going to be experiencing growth like you have today as more and more people want to engage with businesses like yours so thank you so much for joining us on the show i've i've really enjoyed it i hope our audience does it's been great finding out more yeah thank you for having me it's been awesome to chat nice to tell some of those stories thank you Thanks for tuning in to Unconventional Business by HubSpot. If you liked what you listened to, please subscribe and I'll catch you on the next episode.